True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The abandoned school is eerily dark in the early hours of the morning. It's been a long time since the classrooms were filled with the laughter and chatter of children. Now, the spaces are occupied by those who seek out a quiet place to do drugs or drink. A security guard patrols the buildings, but no sooner has he chased away one trespasser when another takes their place. That morning, though, when he sees a young man seemingly sleeping in the corner of one classroom, something seems different. He calls out, and the young man doesn't move. Then, he shines his torch in that direction, and the most horrifying of scenes presents itself. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to Episode 95, The Murder of Lee Adams. This episode is sponsored by Just Wellness. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. It's a time when organizations across the world campaign to remind women about the importance of early detection, regular mammograms, and self-checks. For those already fighting cancer, Just Wellness is getting behind Breast Cancer Awareness Month with their unique blend of olive leaf extract and cancer bush. The cancer bush plant contains the amino acid GABA in high quantities, which provides benefits for those living with serious medical conditions. Treatments for cancer like radiation and chemotherapy, while life-saving in many cases, also have a significant negative impact on the body in other ways, and another component of this Just Wellness blend, Sutherlandia, help to dramatically improve appetite, increase energy levels, and gives an enhanced sense of well-being. Just Wellness is offering a promotion on this product through their website, justwellness.co.za. Buy two products and get free delivery. A huge thank you to Just Wellness for sponsoring this episode. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Leslie Cairns, Rishav Yagwant, Marinus Kutsia, Wyvernoff Winter, Michael Fenter, Louise Mackridge, Christelle, Portia Dubé, Bradley Carolus, Cindy Reinders, Tracy Cook, Zef Cheese, Keith Cummings, Jill Murray, Alta, Nicole Sean, Krista Swartz, Cloni Lehoko, and Magpie for your support on Patreon, as well as Gladys Ortone for your support on PayPal. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. I'm back. After what started as a two-week hiatus for a few book launches and turned into three weeks thanks to flu. I'm back in the swing of things podcast-wise, and I have definitely missed all of you. I must say that it really was awesome to meet all those listeners who came out to the book launches in Johannesburg and Cape Town, and the support everyone showed was just phenomenal. Samurai Sword Murder, the Mornay Haramsa story, is in all bookstores now, and it can be purchased online too. The ebook is already available, and the audiobook will be released soon. I'll be planning on more book launches and signing events across the country, so if you missed out, keep an eye on social media for those events. I'd love to meet you and sign your copy of the book. I must say, I didn't realize how much I would enjoy doing these live events, and I think I might like to do something like that for the podcast in the future. Let me know if that's something you'd like to. It's good to be back, and now, on with today's episode. I first came across Lee's case when I was helping a television production company to produce a series on South African crimes in which occult-related activity had been claimed as a motive. I had the pleasure of chatting with Lee's mom by text, 
and the pain of her loss, even almost ten years later, is still palpable. The circumstances of Lee's murder were horrific, and I must warn you that this episode contains details of gruesome injuries to essentially a child, because Lee was only 15 years old when he was murdered. The occult allegations in this case took several forms, and the defendant would attempt to use many different excuses to explain away his behaviour. The interesting thing is, though, that the actual motive really was occult-related to some extent, just not in the way you'd think. In researching this case, I used an episode of Orpsia Suspur, documents and statements that I was able to source, and media articles. So let's get into episode 95, The Murder of Lee Adams. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Gaynor Adams fell pregnant with Lee when she was just 19 years old. Although she and the child's father, Dion, did not stay together, Gaynor says that she and Lee instantly bonded, and for a long time until she met her first husband, it was just her and Lee against the world. When Lee was still very little, Gaynor met and married her first husband, and she would have another son from this marriage, who she called Zion. Sadly, Gaynor says that this marriage, which lasted 11 years, was very toxic, and in Lee's early teens, she divorced his stepfather, and Gaynor was once again a single mom. In 2013, Gaynor and her two sons were living in Ravensmead in Cape Town. The suburb is close to Belleville. The neighbourhood houses mainly families, despite being on the edge of several industrial areas, but like many other Cape Town suburbs, it has become ravaged by gang violence, and mothers know that the safest place for their children is at home as much as possible. Lee had a close-knit group of friends. Despite having lived with his mom's rocky marriage to his stepdad, he was a well-balanced child and popular with his teachers. If anything, teachers said, Lee only made giving lessons difficult because they were laughing too much at his wise crack jokes and antics. Lee was certainly known as the class clown. By the age of 15, Lee had indulged in far fewer risky behaviours than most teens. For the most part, he enjoyed spending time at home with his mom and younger brother. As many teenagers do, Lee had occasionally smoked marijuana with his friends, and so, on the 17th of October 2013, when his mom asked him to walk to the shops to get bread, and he saw an older boy he knew from the neighbourhood on the road, and that boy asked Lee if he'd like to smoke a joint, he agreed. When Lee did not return home that afternoon with the bread, Gaynor immediately became concerned. She called all of Lee's friends and no one had heard from him. She waited for a few hours, hoping that perhaps he'd just got sidetracked and would reappear. But as the hours crept by, that seemed more and more unlikely. In the early hours of the 18th of October 2013, a security guard was patrolling an abandoned school building in Ravensmead. Florida Primary had been shut down in 2005. At the time, the local government claimed they had plans to turn it into a much-needed community clinic, but the years had gone by and nothing had happened. Soon the building became a hotspot for criminal activity. Drug users would find refuge for their deals and drug-taking there. Homeless people attempted to sneak onto the property to find shelter, and groups of teenagers would use the classrooms as places to drink where they were less likely to get caught by roaming neighbourhood watch or police officers. In the dawn hours of that morning, though, the security guard found the school buildings eerily quiet. He walked from room to room, 
letting his flashlight illuminate the dark crevices. It was only when he entered one old classroom that he spotted someone lying on the floor. The rooms had all been stripped of everything movable, but in what would have been the front of a classroom, under a big patch of raw concrete on the wall where a blackboard had once been fixed, a young man lay face down. The security guard stood at the door and called out to the boy, telling him he should wake up and get off the property or he was going to call the police. But there was no response and no movement. The guard had learned not to get too close to drug addicts and others he found hiding in these buildings. They could be volatile when cornered, and he'd found himself on the receiving end of their violence before. When the boy didn't respond, though, and continued to lie so completely still, a shiver ran down the man's spine. What if the boy had overdosed on something? Despite his torchlights, the boy's body lay in such a way that shadows masked much of it. Dressed in light grey shorts and a dark grey sweatshirt, the person certainly didn't look homeless. His white sneakers were spotless, despite now being pushed into the dusty, bare concrete floor. It was then that the man noticed that the boy's legs were twisted beneath him at an odd, uncomfortable angle one that certainly couldn't be possible to sleep in for more than a few minutes without your legs going into spasm. He inched closer. Around the boy lay piles of white electrical wire, which had probably been pulled out of the wall or floor when the classrooms were stripped. Some of the white cable was tinged, though, with red It was only when the security guard got right up to the boy that he could really take in the full horror of what he was seeing. The walls around the boy were not just scarred with graffiti, they were also splattered with blood. And then the guard shone his torch down at the boy. Perhaps in his worst nightmares only believing he would see the oxygen-deprived face of a young teenager who'd succumbed to an overdose. But what he saw, or rather did not see, would likely never leave the man's memory. The young man on the floor of the classroom was clearly dead, but where his head should have been, nothing remained. The abandoned school building is just two streets and just over 500 metres as the crow flies from Ravensmead Police Station, and all available officers arrived at the scene within minutes. The security guard's horrifying message about the circumstances around what he just found made all officers on duty aware that this was a violent crime that was very different from those they usually saw. Gang-related murders were not uncommon in the area, nor were overdoses or even deaths as a result of assault. But this, this scene the security guard was describing, was something completely new. When forensics officers and detectives entered the derelict building in which the murder victim's body had been found, it was difficult to know what would be evidence and what wouldn't. The area was littered with discarded bottles, cigarette butts, and really a bit of a forensic nightmare. But the square meter or so that made up the primary scene presented with some very significant evidence. The victim's body, of course, was the first focus. There was no identification on the body and only a pair of earphones poking out of the back pocket. There was a 20 rand note in the front pocket. The huge puddle of blood around the body indicated that this was where the decapitation and likely the murder itself had taken place. The walls around the body were a trove of evidence and told a story of how the perpetrator had stood over the victim, inflicting the horrific injuries, and then, their hands covered in blood, had pressed up against the wall. 
Had they stumbled? Or had the task they'd undertaken overwhelmed them for a moment and they'd had to rest? Perpetrators who choose to dismember their victims often underestimate how difficult it is to remove parts of the human body. Although the adrenaline rushing through their veins will often help, it's quite common to see incomplete dismemberments or decapitations as the perpetrators simply give up. This offender, though, had clearly finished the job, and although cadaver dogs were brought in to see if the victim's head could be located, after multiple searches of the school premises, nothing was found. A few streets away at the Adams' home, Gaynor was seeing messages on the neighbourhood WhatsApp group that were very concerning. She'd waited throughout the night, and Lee had still not returned. She'd just been headed out to the police station to report her son missing when she'd seen the messages coming through. Her stomach lurched. It couldn't be. Within hours, though, Gaynor's worst fears would be confirmed. After providing police with a description of what Lee had been wearing when he'd left the home, a dark grey sweatshirt, light grey shorts, white sneakers, the fact that she'd given him a 20 rand note to buy bread and that he always carried his headphones in his back pocket. Police had to tell Gaynor that there was a high chance that the body they'd found was Lee's. It was when she asked to see him so that she could verify this that she was given even more horrifying news. She would not be able to identify her son visually. He had been decapitated. Gaynor would eventually be asked to look at her son's remains in the mortuary. The gaping wound at his neck was covered, but there was no mistaking that the lanky arms and legs, whose memory would be forever imprinted on her heart, belonged to her son. Detectives on Lee's case immediately considered a few possibilities around his murder. Although the decapitation was not normal gang behaviour, there was still a possibility that the murder had been carried out to send some kind of message. Looking into Lee's background, though, police could find no indication that he'd been involved in gangs in the area. In South Africa, the removal of body parts in murders often prompts the suspicion that some form of occult activity is involved. Now, when I say the word occult, I know your mind immediately goes to Satanism, and that aspect would become an allegation later in this case. But at this point, with Lee's head having been taken from the scene, detectives were looking at an entirely different occult-related possibility. Had Lee been the victim of a Muti murder? You will have heard me mention the concept of Muti murders on the podcast before. It's a relatively rare phenomenon, but it has been recorded on the African continent and even other parts of the world where African communities live. I found a chapter of a book called Serial Offenders by Kevin Borgeson and Kristen Kuhnle. Chapter 8 of that book is written by our very own Dr. Gerard Labaskachny, and it relates to Muti murders. In this chapter, Dr. Labaskachny explains that the word Muti simply means medicine, and therefore not all instances of the use of the word involve any criminal aspect. There are a few traditional healers who subscribe to less ethical forms of Muti practice, in which human body parts are believed to have more power than other ingredients like herbs, plants, seawater, and animal body parts. When these human body parts are taken from the victim, it is a requirement that the victim is alive at the time, as it's believed in this way the body part contains the strongest of life essence. Dr. Labaskakni also goes on to explain that when investigators come across a murder where a body part has been removed, it is vital not to jump to the Muti murder conclusion immediately. 
Such murders can either be multi-related, cult murders where a group is involved, serial murders, or a single murder by a particularly sadistic murderer, or where they're attempting to avoid identification of the victim. Dr. Labuskakni also says that when it is determined that the body part may have been removed for some occult-related reason, it's important to distinguish between it having been a muti murder and a sacrificial murder. In some cult groups, human sacrifices may play a role, and the pathology and roots of investigation between this type of murder is very different to a muti murder. A muti murder is really more of a business transaction, as terrible as that might sound. The body part in question will be requisitioned by a person practicing unethical muti, and then a middleman will identify a victim and commit the murder, and then sell the body part back to the person who requested it. Muti murders are not specifically categorized for data purposes in South Africa, and generally fall under the murder category. The last estimation of the number of Muti murders was done in 2002, and indicated that the crime occurred between 15 and 300 times per year, which is a pretty wide bracket. Considering 20,000 people are murdered on average in South Africa per year, that puts the percentage of Muti murders at between 0.007 and 1.5% of all murders. This is, of course, not a huge number. However, if you consider the absolute viciousness and horrendous nature of these crimes, it's very scary. Most victims of Muti murder pass away from the pain, trauma and blood loss of having body parts removed while they are conscious. With this in mind, when looking at a scene that may be a muti murder, investigators can look for a few signs that will confirm the suspicion. Usually in muti murders, the body of the victim is not buried and is left out in the open because the belief is that the discovery of the body strengthens the medicine made with the body parts. Often the body may be left near water, but this is not always the case. Although, as we've said, body parts are supposed to have been removed from the victim while they're alive, in Dr. Labuskakni's chapter on Muti, he mentions that he's seen many cases in which body parts were stolen from bodies at mortuaries, because, let's face it, the person ordering the body parts will actually have no idea whether the middle man has actually carried out the harvesting while the victim is alive. One other very important point in identifying muti murders is that the goal of the crime is actually not to kill. It's to harvest the body parts or organs. Death usually results from the action of removing the body parts, but there are recorded survivors of muti body part harvesting. Because murder is not the motive, detectives won't usually see other injuries to the body that aren't related to restraining the victim. So when Lee Adams's body was sent for autopsy and the forensic pathologist Bronwyn Abrahams found that Lee had not just abrasions on his face, which appeared to be from punches, but also several stab wounds all over his neck and chest. This brought the Muti theory into question. The pathologist would confirm, though, that Lee's cause of death had to have ultimately been the blood loss from the severing of the neck, although he would have been unconscious by that point. These other injuries did make detectives wonder if this had really been a Muti murder. The other occult-related option that it may have been a sacrificial murder by a cult group, also didn't seem to fit, as usually in those cases, the body will be cleanly presented and displayed, and not essentially dumped, like Lee's was. In the early hours after Lee's body was recovered, detectives had interviewed his mother and brother, and then started talking to his friends 
and residents who lived along the path to the shop Lee would have been headed to when he disappeared. Soon, one young man came forward who would give police a huge lead. Brian's Manassi knew Lee Adams from school, and he also knew the young man he'd seen him with on the day Lee had disappeared. That person, Brian said, was 17-year-old Alyar Swartz. But it wasn't just that he'd seen Swartz with Lee that day. There was something else, too. Brian's Manassi claimed that he'd overheard Swartz telling someone else that he could earn 5,000 rand by selling body parts, and he'd approached Bryant on several occasions, asking him to arrange to bring a friend to the park because he needed someone to do something for him. On the 19th of October, police descended on the home of Alia Swartz. The young man was arrested, and as his shocked mother watched on, the home was searched and dogs were brought in to search the premises, too. In Swartz's bedroom, police found two knives and a machete under his bed. Testing would later confirm that Lee Adams's blood was on the implements. Cadaver dogs searched the property. They first alerted on Swartz's bedroom, and then led officers out into the backyard. Under a tree, a disturbed patch of earth caught the dog's attention. When forensics teams slowly started to dig, they unearthed a plastic bag, and inside was a human head. With the horrific discovery, Alia Swartz was charged with the murder of Lee Adams. Despite the mountain of evidence against him, Swartz insisted he was innocent. He claimed he hadn't even seen Lee on the day he went missing and was murdered. Swartz's horrified mother could not account for his whereabouts on the evening of the 17th. Gaynor was relieved to hear that someone had been arrested in her son's murder, but the question remained, why had this happened? With Swartz in custody, Detectives set about comparing the finger and palm prints found on the scene with their suspect. Warrant Officer Becker was the officer who undertook the analysis of the blood transfer found at the scene. The marks found in blood on the walls around Lee's body are referred to as transfer patterns, and the science used to analyse them is called comparative friction ridge analysis, or regiology. The friction ridges on your skin refers to the skin that is present along the lengths of the fingers, across the palms of the hands, and on the soles of the feet. The skin contains raised ridges and recessed furrows that are used for gripping and other mechanical motions. So when our hands are covered in a substance, blood in this case, and we touch a surface, the patterns left behind on the surface will be from your friction ridges. And this is what Warrant Officer Becker was looking at at the scene of Lee's murder. The first transfer pattern Becker looked at was from a right hand. Here the offender had clearly leaned against the wall after his right hand was covered in blood. If you're near a wall right now, pretend you suddenly need to rest and lean against it and do so using your right hand. Without thinking about it too much, notice how your hand naturally touches the wall. It's hardly ever a flat hand. It's always at a bit of an angle, where the right hand of your palm will make contact, and your right index and right middle finger will also make direct contact with the wall. Your thumb almost always stays mobile, as it's used to being the digit that does things and needs to move separately from your other fingers, so it generally doesn't make full contact with the surface. This brief touch, which you'll likely not even notice, leaves behind vital evidence when you're committing a crime. The best of these prints found was the index print, 
and this was compared to the right index finger on Alia Swartz, which was found to be a perfect match. The amount of blood that had to have been on the hand of the offender at the time the transfer was made, judging by the transfer pattern and the pooling and streaking of blood on the wall, also meant that the person leaving the mark must have been in direct contact with large amounts of blood. This was not something you would see if someone had, for instance, just touched a person who was bleeding. The hand was drenched in blood before it touched the wall. As the investigation continued, more evidence came to light, and Alia Swartz began to speak hesitantly to police. The community of Ravensmead was abuzz with all sorts of allegations. The horrific crime, perhaps understandably, had created a current of fear. The residents of the area were used to dealing with gangsters and drug dealers, but this was an entirely different situation. What on earth could have brought a 17-year-old boy to decapitate a 15-year-old and take the child's head with him to his home? In these early days, hardly anyone was talking about Muti, but many people were talking about Satanism. These rumours would come from Swartz himself, who although still denying he'd committed the crime, shared parts of his history with police officers. He told them that when his parents had divorced when he was very young and his father was no longer in his life, he'd felt lost and he'd found a group of people who he claimed practiced Satanism and he claimed he'd remained part of that group for many years. Initially, Alia Swartz's identity was kept confidential due to him still being a minor, at least in the press. But everyone in the Ravensmead community knew who the perpetrator was that had been arrested. Among them, there was no anonymity, and Swartz's mother suddenly felt like a pariah in a community she'd lived in her entire life. She'd raised her son there, been married there, divorced there, and struggled along as a single mom. But after her son was arrested, the amount of support dwindled and then completely tapered off. Friends of the woman would later say, though, she'd barely noticed. Her thoughts were continuously split between her son and his fate and the family of the young man whose life had been ripped away. On the 26th of October 2013, Lee Adams was laid to rest by his grieving family. Family, friends and community members gathered at Ravensmead Civic Centre to bid farewell to the boy they knew as a joker. Those in attendance dressed in black and purple, which was Lee's favourite colour. His cousins struggled through tears to sing a song in memory of Lee. The funeral was a point of conclusion in a week that had been the most horrific this group of people had ever lived through. But it was just one point of conclusion, and all present could have no idea how much longer they would have to wait for another. After police were certain that they'd gathered all evidence they could, charges against Swartz were finalised, but the very nature of the crime meant that he would have to undergo a psychiatric assessment. This process would occupy most of 2014, as first they waited for a bed in the nearest forensic psychiatric ward, then waited out the assessment, and later the results, and for a trial date to be set. Swartz had turned 18 by the time 2015 dawned, and it was determined that he was able to contribute to his own defence, and he was not living with any mental health conditions that would have impacted his actions at the time of the crime. Swartz would later dispute this, although the nature of what he considered his condition would only become apparent when his trial finally started in early 2016. In February 2016, 
Swartz's trial began in the Western Cape High Court, and the young man entered pleas of not guilty across all the charges he faced. It soon became clear that the prosecution's version was going to be that Alia Swartz had committed premeditated murder on Lee Adams after spending weeks looking for the right victim for what was essentially a financially motivated crime. The prosecution soon began to lead evidence through witnesses that for months before the murder, Swartz had been telling his closest friends that he intended to kill someone in order to sell their body parts to Mooty dealers. One young man testified that Swartz had told him in the days before Lee's murder that he was getting ready to kill someone and that he would receive 5,000 rand in return for the body parts he supplied. Many of the witnesses who testified to having been told about Swartz's plans also said that while they didn't think he was serious, they were also far too scared of Swartz to do anything about it. Swartz, it seemed, was notorious among the young people of Ravensmead for being completely uncaring. He did not appear to have participated in gang activity, but after the gangsters, his cold and calculated manner made him one of the most feared young men in his neighbourhood. Another witness testified to having seen Swartz and Lee together on the day of the murder, and said he had overheard Swartz asking Lee if he wanted to smoke a joint with him at the abandoned school. Swartz denied all of this. He claimed that he had not been anywhere near Lee Adams on the day of the murder, and he hadn't lured the boy to the school. In the three years between when Lee had been murdered and when the trial of his accused murderer had started, Gaynor Adams had met and married someone new. Daywood Ross had come into her life when she was living through what was undoubtedly the worst thing any parent could imagine, and she'd fallen in love with the care and empathy he showed toward her. Gaynor was only able to attend the court proceedings on one occasion. The brutal details were just too much for her to bear. Daywood attended more regularly. Despite never having met his late stepson, he bore witness to the devastation his murder had caused in the lives of the family he'd married into. On the 17th of February 2016, Warrant Officer Becker testified to the fingerprint evidence that proved that Alyar Swartz had been at the scene of Lee's murder and that his hands had been covered in blood when he'd been there. With Alyar himself having tabled allegations of satanic involvement, that aspect was always going to have to be dealt with in the trial, whether or not anyone thought there was any credibility to it. An investigator on the case who'd been trained in psychologically motivated crimes testified before the court that he did not see any evidence of a ritualistic murder at the scene of Lee's killing. Twenty days after pleading not guilty, as evidence mounted against him, Alia Swartz took the stand and, to everyone's amazement, admitted that he had indeed committed the murder. He told the courts that although his involvement in Satanism had not directly impacted his actions, he claimed that a pastor had recently consulted with him and told him that he was possessed by several demons, and he now believed that this was why he'd committed the murder. He denied having committed the crime knowingly or premeditating it, and said he had no knowledge of any mooty dealings. This, despite a witness, having testified that in the hours after Lee's murder, Swartz had been in contact with several people, telling them he had something to sell, and asking them to put him in touch with people who would buy body parts. On the 14th of March 2016, with all evidence from both sides heard, Judge Elise Stain delivered her decision. She found Alia Swartz guilty of all charges against him. Swartz's defense attorney immediately lodged an appeal for the trial to be declared invalid, and his client, 
to be given the opportunity to undergo an exorcism and then be retried. The judge immediately denied this appeal. She stated that a court of law was no place for claims of possession, and if any mental health issues had not been picked up in the extensive psychiatric assessment, then it was not something the court could take into consideration. With Swartz found guilty, the next phase of the proceedings was to be the presentation of mitigating and aggravating circumstances for sentencing. Swartz's attorney presented his youth and the fact that he'd never been found guilty of a violent crime before in mitigation, and also continued to rely heavily on the possession claims. In a separate motion, he made application to the court to force the Department of Corrections to allow a pastor to conduct an exorcism on Swartz behind bars. The department had refused the request because it involved physical contact and a risk level that was inconsistent with maintaining the security of the correctional facility. This motion was also denied, but a few days later, the pastor in question spoke to the media and said that he'd found a way to conduct a remote exorcism, and he'd managed to exorcise Swartz completely of all the demons that had been possessing him. I do hope that this gentleman was able to formalize that practice, because I feel like we started doing everything remotely during the pandemic, so that type of service would have been really useful. <clears throat> I digress. In aggravation of sentence, the prosecution called Professor Sean Kaliski, who'd been part of the assessment team at Falkenberg, who carried out the observation on SWATs. Kaliski told the court that Swart presented with very strong psychopathic personality traits. After assessing the level of violence involved in Lee Adams's murder, Kaliski told the court that there were three types of people who could carry out the actions he saw represented in the crime. The first was someone who'd been indoctrinated into an extremist organization like ISIS. The second was a person who was in a psychotic state at the time of the crime. And the third was a psychopath. Since there was no evidence that Swartz had been indoctrinated into anything, nor that he'd experienced clinical psychosis, psychopathy was the only explanation. He'd also picked up strong psychopathic tendencies in other tests he'd done. Kaliski said, quote, I just think he has very strong psychopathic traits. He is remorseless and has a superficial emotional life. He doesn't seem to be close to anybody. No one really matters to him. End quote. Swartz was 19 years old at the time that he was assessed by Kaliski. It is very rare for mental health professionals to put the label of psychopath on a person of that age, because their personalities are still developing, and young people are often naturally quite self-absorbed. Empathy often grows with age and experience, so psychologists and psychiatrists are quite hesitant with personality diagnoses in teens. So, for a professional like Kaliski to warn the court that Swartz was a dangerous individual was quite compelling. At one point, there was talk that Swartz may be declared a dangerous offender, meaning that he would not be subject to normal parole procedures when he became eligible and instead would have to appear before a judge to be considered for release. Considering the significant threat that Swartz's psychopathy posed to any possible rehabilitation, and how much it increased the possibility of reoffending, this would have been a really good move, in my opinion. But unfortunately, because Swartz was 17 at the time of his offence, the judge had to apply the Child Justice Act in her sentencing, and this barred her from declaring him a dangerous criminal as well. Judge Elise Stain was not swayed by the claims of possession, 
but in her sentencing, she had no choice but to take Alia Swartz's youth into account and could not give him more than 25 years in prison as a sentence. As a result, Swartz was handed down an effective 22 years in prison. Lee Adams's family was not happy with the sentence, and I think understandably so. Swartz had spent almost the entire trial denying he'd even been at the scene of Lee's murder. Then, he eventually admitted he had done it, but claimed he'd been possessed. During sentencing, when it became clear that wasn't working, he shifted to admitting that he had been drawn into the idea of committing a murder for muti trade purposes. Even then, though, he did not share the full truth. He still insisted that he was being driven by some uncontrollable external force. He did not take full responsibility for what he had done. While I understand the importance of the Child Justice Act, and in maybe 7 out of 10 cases, I'm sure it helps to rehabilitate child offenders rather than make them worse, I really do think that there needs to be some leeway for judges when the offender is so close to turning 18. Alia Swartz is very clearly already a dangerous human being. His level of diagnosable psychopathy in his teenage years has to make you wonder what he'll be like when he's an adult, having lived in the prison system for 22 years. It's actually a terrifying thought. And there's another thing that bugs me about this case, and that is that the Adams family was surprised by the sentence. They had openly hoped for a life sentence, but that was never going to be legally possible, and I don't understand why someone didn't tell them that. I see this quite a lot, and while I understand it's not the prosecutor's job to educate victims' families about the justice system, Someone needs to do it, because this is just adding additional trauma to already deeply traumatized people. The concept of consecutive and concurrent sentences doesn't ever seem to be explained to families, or how life sentences work, and the fact that there's still a possibility of parole. So they put these cases to bed, thinking they'll never have to look at that person in the eye again. And then, however many years later, they are surprised with a call from the Department of Correctional Services. I can only hope that by the time Swartz is eligible for parole, our parole system will be better equipped to make a clear determination about the level of risk he presents to society. We live in hope. For the Adams family, no amount of time in prison will be enough. But they cannot accept that they will possibly have to relive this again in 11 or 15 years. In the years since Lee's death, Gaynor has tried to stitch together some semblance of a family life. She admits that she was not emotionally available for her younger son for many years and regrets that he had to deal with everything in isolation. She feels for the first time that she's starting to come out of some sort of fog. She remains happily married to Daywood Ross, and they've recently added a baby girl to their family, who they named Leah, in memory of the older brother she would never meet. When she's requested to... Gaynor contributes to articles and television programs about her son, but on each occasion, she says, it just brings it all back up again, and she struggles for weeks after every event. Now, she focuses on her remaining children, while still trying to come to terms with the fact that she is the mother of a deceased child who was ripped away from her in the most horrendous of ways. Lee Adams was just 15 years old when his life was brought to a brutal and abrupt end. He was the class clown, 
liked by all of his classmates. His friends said at his funeral how, since his death, there was this clear hole in their environment. They hadn't realized how much of their lives Lee had filled, enriched and improved with his quick wit and knack for making light of a situation. He'd eased the stress of high school for them on a regular basis and simply made their lives better by just being there. And it was when he was gone, when his laughter, smile and light spirit were nothing but a memory, that his empty chair started to really hit them. That was when they understood what they'd had and what they lost. As much as people say that they'd been afraid of the person who took Lee's life, they'd said the opposite about Lee himself. He was kind, caring, and would likely have been hurt if anyone had even alluded to being afraid of him. He was the antithesis of the person who killed him. In some way, it kind of makes horrifying sense that someone like this offender would select Lee. Lee was not the kind of person who could ever fathom this sort of betrayal, this level of utter violence and horror. Lee could never imagine wanting to hurt someone in the way he was taken. And so, when someone he knew made him an offer, he took it at face value and trusted him. Because... In Lee's innocent and kind mind, monsters didn't exist. Lee Adams, rest gently. Thank you for listening to episode 95. The Murder of Lee Adams. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.